Hello and welcome to another episode of the Tennis Fanalist Podcast. I am Michael Gillett and I'm joined, as always, with Marcus Alley. Marcus, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, thanks, Michael. Bit of a slow week in the tennis world, but I'm looking forward to getting to some of the interesting topics for debate that have still still been thrown up. Yeah, it's probably going to be a, a little bit of a shorter episode today. Um, coming up, we're going to talk about the expedition tournaments that there's been in Germany, and then we're just going to do a bit of self-indulgence and, and talk about some of our favourite tennising memories and players. Expedition, mate. It's not DV. What did I say? Or did I say expedition? Ex- ex- exhibition tournaments. Yeah. Did I say? Or did I? Did I say expedition? That's really. Yeah, funny. you're not packing your rucksack yeah. for gold DV or anything, are you? So this week's main tennis action came from Berlin, where we had uh, an exhibition tournament in Germany called the Bet One Aces. Uh, it's actually the first tournament in Germany with fans, which is obviously a a big step forwards for sport. Uh, Marcus, what did you make of this tournament? I thought it was good fun, to be honest. Um, obviously, Dominic Team going in there as the biggest player, and he, he did say that, um, well, he admitted that going back, he had tried to go back early like other players in the in the sort of disastrous Adria tour that we, we'd spoken about. Um, but there was definitely a different feel to this. You know, it was a lot safer. I think there was um, just like one ball boy um, with mask and gloves players just touching rackets and I think there was only one um, ball server or whatever, whatever you'd call it when they when they request the balls to uh, get ready to serve and also the crowd looked sort of safely distanced um, so yeah I mean it was it was a good return of tennis sort of in in the new normal and obviously it was one of the first time we get to see some top players obviously that the world number three Dominic team and the, the standard the standard was good Yes, as you mentioned, Dominic Team played there. Uh, he ended up winning the tournament. He beat the young and upcoming player that we talked a bit about last week in Yannick Sinner in the final. He's just 18 years old. Uh, we also saw last year's uh, Wimbledon semi-finalist Roberto Bautista a good play as well as a brilliant comeback from the recently retired Tommy Haas from Germany who managed to beat Jan Leonard Struff also from Germany um, in what's a really impressive win. What did you make of that, Marcus, seeing Tommy Haas back at his best? Yeah, I mean, if it wasn't an exhibition tournament and it wasn't in Germany, I, you know, I don't think we can get carried away and expect to be seeing Tommy Haas too regularly at 42 years old. But, you know, it was, you know he put, put on a, a good show for the crowd, a, a home favourite, even though Struff, obviously, his compatriot that he beat. Um, he beat him 7-6, 7-6 as well, which is... Obviously, quite impressive with Struff having a, having a decent serve, and uh, just shows physically at forty two he could still sort of handle what twenty six games of games of tennis. So no, yeah, a real sort of feel good factor seeing seeing someone like him back on the court. Yeah, and I saw a bit of his first set against uh, Dominic Team in the semi final, and going into the tie break, Tommy Hass was actually looking like the better player, and and I think before that tie break, you you might have guessed. Uh, that Haas was going to come out with the win and, and that was where Dominic Team was able to turn the match around. But yeah, no, really impressive from him. Um, and yeah, as I said, really good to see 18-year-old Yannick Sinner playing really well. Um, a very comprehensive win over Bautista again in the semi. Uh, did you enjoy watching Yannick Sinner last week? I did. I did very much so, yeah. I mean, despite um, Dominic Team obviously, not dropping a set and, and winning the title, you can't help but say that 
Yannick Sinner has kind of stolen the show again. Um, you know, beating Karen Hatchinov in straights, beating Roberto Bautista a good in straights, and some of the shots he was pulling off in the final, even in a in a six four six two defeat. Just his mindset, he's so aggressive. Obviously, that can lead to some errors. You know, it, it was a bit of a raw approach, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the potential there really, like the sky's the limit. I mean, some of the winners he was hitting in team was just sort of stood there in shock. And this is a, a player as, as great as Dominic team that really couldn't live with him in some, in some games. Um, so yeah, obviously only at 18 years old and racing through to the final against two consistent top 20 players. You'd have to say Hatchinoff and Bautista are good. It's really impressive. And um, yeah, just, just makes me more and more excited to see what else we're going to see from him uh, as the season progresses. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed that final between Team and Sinner. And I'm hoping, obviously, with how Sinner is coming up, with Team is at the top of his game at the moment, hopefully that will be the first of quite a few matches we can see against them. So, yeah, all in all, uh, a really, really good tournament. Um, one thing I think that neither of us uh, liked about the tournament, Marcus, what did you make of the courts, just out of interest? Yeah, I mean... I suppose it's modern, isn't it? Having a singles court rather than a doubles court. There wasn't a doubles event of uh, of uh, bet one aces. I mean, that would have been a bit complicated having to just guess whether you've kept the ball in or not. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, it is a bit of an eyesore. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, I don't. I feel like it's harder to see. Um, obviously, just to explain to the listeners, if they didn't see any of bet one aces, it's a singles tennis court. So basically, a, a normal tennis court, but the tram lines are cut out. Um, and I just thought it was a bit harder to see where the ball's going. Like, um, seeing the contrast between the end of the court and just the outside of it, it was, it's like, it was like a grey colour to a black colour. And it also just felt like, I don't know, going for the lines on a normal tennis court, as in trying to hit a winner and going for the lines, you can see more obviously like where they are because in the middle of two sort of areas, what you're aiming for, whereas you've just got... <laughs> You've got it's completely out and uh, and um, you've lost the point. Or yeah, you, I feel like you'd self-consciously like play a safer shot just because you you can see how obviously how bigger the the margin for error is. Yeah, I completely agree. I I wasn't too keen on it myself. I don't know if I'm the only one who thinks that without the doubles lines, the court looks a lot lot longer than it normally does. I don't know if it's just with the lack of width, it just suddenly looks like it's even longer. But yeah, I found it a bit of an eyesore as well. So yeah, that was the Bet One Aces in Berlin. Uh, yeah. So on to the second part of this episode of the Tennis Fanlist podcast. Um, we're going to just talk about some of our memories in tennis so Marcus can I ask you what was your first memory of tennis yeah so for me the one that really sticks out is um Wimbledon 2008 uh, as a tournament as a whole and just the first time I actually sort of consistently watched it uh, I was only nine years old at the time so I think I kind of learned the rules as as I watched it I feel like the court when you're that age is quite complicated like where you've got to serve it whether it's in or out, um, but yeah, that just sticks out in my mind. Also, I feel like it was a bit, a bit of a breakthrough year for for Andy Murray. I think he got to the quarterfinals that year. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure Nadal knocked him out, and then um, 
a couple of months after in the US Open, he went on to to get to the final. Um, so yeah, Wimbledon 2008 really sticks out in my mind as when because I've also grown up with other sports as when sort of tennis sort of became into, uh, strongly into into one of my interests. And uh, yeah, just even five set matches, I could I could sit through them easily after after that because it is quite a long time to be to be watching sports, especially at that age. Easily can get bored, but um, yeah, that that was the, the turning point that made me really want to sort of follow follow the game and the players for a long time after. Yeah, I completely agree. I think one of my first Tennessee memories would be the the year before that final. Actually, obviously. Uh, the 2008 final was the one where Nadal finally topped Federer and and won the Wimbledon title. The year before uh, the final, I believe it was also five sets, big long match, but Federer stopped Nadal. Um, and yeah, I remember those two finals for me sort of merge into one because at the time, you know, at that sort of age, I didn't really watch a lot of tennis. It was really just Wimbledon every year, very much seasonal thing. Um, but yeah, also, I think one of my earliest vivid memory of tennis is just Roger Federer's dominance. I remember just thinking from such a young age that this guy wins everything in tennis. And, and it was so obvious that even though I didn't know a lot about tennis at the time, just Roger Federer's excellence and, and just brilliance in the sport was, was just so, so obvious from such a young age. Um, and it's remarkable that he's he's still going now. Um, but yeah, do you remember a tournament outside Wimbledon, the, um, the first sort of one he followed? Um, I'm not sure, honestly. Um, I didn't really start getting into tennis outside of Wimbledon until maybe my early teens. Um, so no, I remember. I remember going to the ATP World Tour Finals at the O2. I remember what the first year I went was. I think it was possibly 2013. Um, and saw Songer against Federer. But obviously, you know, I'm 14 by this point. I definitely can remember watching, uh, I think, Rogers Cup possibly uh, was the first ATP tournament that I did watch. Uh, I can't remember who won myself. Um, That's the yeah, Masters in Canada, isn't it? Yeah, Rogers Cup, a Masters tournament in Canada. And I think at this point, I was just starting to become aware that tennis was a lot bigger than I thought it was, with it just being French Open, Wimbledon, etc., uh, etc. Et but um, I do have some memories of Queens as well, quite young, because um, obviously that's on TV before Wimbledon every year. And I remember um, watching quite a bit Queens when I was young. Um, what about in in all the time you've watched tennis, Marcus? What would you say would have been your favourite match? Yeah, obviously it's it's tough to say. There's been a lot of a lot of belters over the years. Usually, usually coming in slams because it just sort of feels like there's always more on the line. There's always a bit more passion and a bit more pain pain for the loser. Um, but having to pick one just uh, as as a favourite, hard hard to just pick one. But one that I can't really deny would have to be. I'm not sure you might not even know this game, Michael. But um, Marin Cilic versus Ricard Asparankis, Wimbledon 2015. 
Chilic grinded it out in the fifth set. And the final score was, he won it 6-3-4-6-7-6-4-6-7-5. But just the main thing about this was the sheer contrast in styles. Um, I think Barankis was only just inside the top 100 at the time and Chilic was top 10. And he just gave it an immense go. And, you know, when the the crowd cheer on uh, the underdog on there, I think it would have been court one. Um, It's just, it's just amazing to watch, really. And uh, yeah, obviously, Chilic being so tall compared to the Lithuanian, um, diff- such a difference in serving and just technique. And I mean, it's sort it's, it's sort of one of those um, one of those games that makes you think like tennis is all about endeavour rather than skill. Because Barankis, I mean, I, I don't even think he hit that many winners. He just ran himself into the ground and uh, almost almost toppled a, a U.S. Open winner. Um, so yeah, I just thought that was immense, really. Probably the the performance of his career. Um, just to expand on your question a little bit, Michael, just my general tennis consumption, I do actually prefer to watch um, play court tennis. Um, it's probably what I watch the most of, sort of below um, Masters tennis level, uh, and that's just because. It takes the, I think, serving is less dominant. Uh, it takes, uh, power is less dominant. Um, you tend to get longer rallies. Um, and uh, yeah, that's just something I, I enjoy. I enjoy a lot as well. Yeah, I completely agree with your point on clay court there. I'm, I'm a big fan of the French Open. And I think if it wasn't for Nadal being so dominant at the French Open, I, I do think. I, I could consider the French Open as being the best Grand Slam every year, but I'm not unfortunately, but because Nadal has been so dominant at the French Open, it has sometimes uh, stopped us getting the really competitive finals that we've wanted. But I do, I do agree you can definitely get some more competitive matches on clay and, and some really good rallies. Um, yeah, just one thing to add on that. I, I'll always choose a, a lower-ranked match that I think is going to have a better contest over seeing sort of a top 10 versus 60-something, you know, I think will steamroller them. Just because there's a great player on show, I'd rather watch, you know, two, two lower-quality players battling it out. Um, yeah. I think, what, was, uh, what was your favourite match that you picked? Um, so, I've got a couple, um, but one that I really vividly remember, and I've, I've just had to look up the score so that I can remember exactly, and it's a five-set match at the Australian Open in the quarterfinal. It's between, at the time, the world number two, Novak Djokovic, and the world number eight, or the eighth seed, uh, Stan Ravrinka. And uh, Ravrinka won this match in five sets. He ended up going to win his maiden Grand Slam at the Australian Open. And I, I remember watching this match, and it was such a big shock. You know, Ravrinka was a name at the time in in 2014 that, you know, I, I was aware of, but I hadn't really watched him play a lot because I didn't watch a lot of consistent tennis all the time. But um, this was the first tournament where we really saw Stan Wawrinka turn up and really bring his A game. Um, and he's done it at a few Grand Slams now. He won 9-7 in the fifth set. And um, he just blew Djokovic away. And Djokovic has dominated a lot at the Australian Open. I think he's won it. I want to say about six times the Australian Open. He's very dominant uh, at it. And and Ravrinka just, when he 
plays his best. He can just be brilliant to watch. He's got an absolutely outstanding one-handed backhand. Um, he can just hit winners for fun on it, regardless of who he's playing. And I just remember really enjoying this match. And then Bravrinka ended up going on to take Thomas Burdick out in the semi-final and uh, defeat Rafael Nadal in four sets in the final. And I think that was when he really stamped his name on the tennis world. And he's obviously done really well. That leads me on to one of my second uh, matches. I couldn't watch this match live because of uh, different reasons, but um, I have watched it since on a replay. And, and when Ravrinka um, beat, yeah, beat Novak Djokovic again in the final of the French Open, that was 2015. And this was going to be the year that Djokovic won the French Open. He'd beaten Nadal quite easily in the semi-final. Um, and, you know, Ravrinka again upset him. And I think these two players, Djokovic and Ravrinka, just really bring it to the court when they play each other. And I think it's probably, for me, the most entertaining rivalry that we have on tour. Yeah, he's beaten Djokovic in all three slams he's won there because he beat him when he won the US Open a few years ago. But yeah, I mean, just watching that match for me, I didn't watch the French, but the Australian one, his maiden grand slam, like you say, it was just really refreshing to see a player out of the big three, four, then sort of burst on burst onto the scene. And um, it, it wasn't just a just a one-off with Frank. It's weird how he, yeah, it was sort of a, a late developer. He must have been in his late 20s when he won that first slam. And yeah, it was just really good to see a consistent player on the tour. He might have even been outside the top 10 at the time or maybe only just broken into it. Um, but yeah, obviously, yeah, beating Nadal in the final and toppling Djokovic on his way there it was yeah, a really, really good moment to see um, him finally have, have his, his first success of winning a Grand Slam. Yeah, um, definitely. I think Stan Ravrinka, when when he does play really well, is just one of the best players to watch. He's got such an attacking style, and I, I just think he's really good for tennis. And also a, a very nice man himself. Um, he's, he's very warm and, and good to listen to after the matches and his interviews. So I think he, he definitely has won a lot of fans uh, over. And, and it's a shame that Wimbledon was the only Grand Slam that he hasn't been able to win. I won't say uh, that he never has done it because obviously he, he might still do it. Uh, it's unlikely. He's had a lot of injury problems and age, but then Ravrinka is a player that uh, no one ever expects to win a slam and he's done it three times. So, you know, who who knows what we could see from him. And um, The only other match I was going to mention uh, when we're talking about our favourite matches uh, is the Australian Open final of 2019. Uh, it's Novak Djokovic again, this time against Nadal. And this one just stands out in my mind because both Djokovic and Nadal had got through matches so convincingly to this final and it was all set up to be Clash of the Titans in the final and Djokovic just blew Nadal away. And it honestly, I, I'd say to this day, it's the best tennis performance I've ever seen from Djokovic. He, he was just absolutely unstoppable and... That, that that for me just stands out because I'm not sure how soon it will be when I actually see a better tennis performance. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, one of the more interesting things I think left on the tour to play for when we see the big three winning all these tournaments is how close Djokovic and Nadal can get to overtaking um, Federer's record of Grand Slam titles. Um, yeah, obviously the the gap is is closing quite a lot. 
Um, so yeah. Okay, well, I enjoyed uh, sort of indulging into some of our favourite memories of matches. We're now going to talk about uh, who our favourite players are to watch on tour. Um, and we'll try and include a couple in here that maybe uh, some of the listeners haven't heard of. So these can hopefully be players that you can remember the names of and, and watch out for at the upcoming tournaments when they're back in August. Um, so yeah, Marcus, who who would you say is one of your favourite players to watch on tour? Um, I'm going to kick it off with a player who probably hasn't got that long left, so we've got to enjoy it while we can. He's been a bit injury prone the last couple of years on tour. Um, he's dropped to 50 in the rankings, 34-year-old Frenchman, Richard Gasquet. Um, he's, he's a former top tenner, and the reason why I like watching him play is just the classic technique, uh, how crisp his shots are. You know, he's, he's, he's not very quick, he's not very powerful, but um, he's great at anticipating where the ball's going to go. Um, real, real gentleman off the court as well, I think. Um, very, very sporting. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of French players I get talk about. The obvious one probably being Gael Monfils is a great player to watch. But I think Gasquet is is, is just uh, just as much up there um, for me. And um, yeah, there's there's always going to be some some great rallies when you see Gasquet play. And uh, yeah, in the twilight of his career now, I think you know he's probably only got um, not too many classics left in him, but. I'm sure if he can uh, come back strongly towards the end of the year, the break might have might have helped him physically. You never know. Uh, Gasquet is a great player to watch. Yeah, I think very much with what I was saying with Stan Mavrinka just now, I think that one-handed backhand is just such a brilliant shot to watch. I think Dominic Team examples it really well. Um, so, yeah, I completely agree. I, I definitely remember some good matches with Gasquet. I remember... A match he had with Andy Murray at the French Open, I believe this was 2015. I think he took Murray to four or five sets, um, and and yeah, he he was really really impressive. And yeah, his his skill is is very very good, and he's made three Grand Slam semi-finals. Uh, so he's very much one of these nearly players. And unfortunately, France have produced many of these nearly players with the likes of Gael Monfils, who you say. Uh, Joe Wilfred Songer made a one Grand Slam final and then after that was always sort of lingering around those top five, six players but could never quite do it. Um, yeah, yeah just, one, think... just one more thing on Gasquet, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, I think one of the reasons why I do like watching him so much is he's one of those players who is probably never going to win a slam, probably never going to get to the final of a slam. Yeah, he plays these top players like every month maybe if he gets deep into a tournament and just gives everything even though he knows deep down his, his top level isn't isn't gonna beat their sort of mid-level but he just gives everything you know he strives to to compete and push these players and uh yeah he probably gets satisfaction over taking a set off these guys as much as much as he does um well yeah just just winning winning a match against a lower ranked player it's just a, a good example to show to anyone else um, sort of how you can maximise maximise your abilities. Yeah, he is a real grinder uh, and hard worker, Richard Gasquet. Um, so I'm going to go on to one of my favourite players to watch, and I've got a couple of players who listeners definitely would have heard of. So I'm going to go for uh, the one that I reckon not as many listeners would have heard of. I'm going to go for uh, John Millman, who's an Australian player. 
And I really like watching him because he has so much positive energy on court. And I think nowadays it is something that lacks a little bit. You get players on court who'll lose a point and all of a sudden their head will drop. They'll be sort of throwing their racket around, looking really frustrated. And, and a lot of the time, even when players are winning points, they're keeping this very sort of robotic face on. They don't want to get carried away in the moment. And of course, that's really important. But what I love about John Millman is no matter what match he's playing, what level it is, whether it's a small 250 in Eastbourne, uh, which I've, I've seen him play live in Eastbourne, uh, or whether he's playing on, on the big stage like he played uh, against Federer at the Australian Open this year and, and really should and could have beaten him uh, this year at the Australian Open. But he's one of the first players to always raise his fist after he's won a point. He's fist-pumping his way through matches and he's just very high on energy, a lot of positive energy out there. And I think it's really nice to watch. It's quite refreshing when you see someone you know, win a point. They might even be 40-love down, not even a lot to play for in the game. And, you know, they'll hit a good winner and you hear them shouting, come on, John, well done. And he's talking to himself and always up talking. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think Millman's one of those players who he sort of appreciates and is grateful for the platform that he has as a player that's usually sort of fluctuating between sort of 30 and 60 in the world. Um, and so, yeah, he always likes to, you know, he appreciates the crowds coming in to watch him. He wants to give them a good experience and yeah it feels like he consciously wants to in, enjoy the chances that he has because you know it, it's not a long career and um yeah no I completely agree he's a feel-good player and uh yeah quite quite a refreshing watch John Milman. Yeah no definitely I, I agree so if we just fire a bit quicker through a couple of other players we like watching now who else have you got Marcus? Um so yeah I'll just rattle a couple or off now, so I've gone for Denis Shapovalov, one of the the young guns of the tour, uh, just twenty one, which has actually crept up on me because I remember when he was playing, he was like seventeen, young. Well, obviously he's, uh, I'm pretty sure he's younger than us. Um, he's sixteen in the world now, and uh, for quite a small player, I just like his aggression, um, similar to what I spoke about with Sinner, but Sinner probably has um, sort of a, a more advantageous physique for playing that sort of style of the game but the amount of power that Shapovalov can get on the ball that low centre of gravity um, yeah he's a left-handed player which sometimes you'd like to watch just to mix it up a bit um, I also think when he when he's losing he's one of those players who sort of enjoys if, if the other player's playing well he sort of enjoys it along along with the crowd like I saw him get battered by Frederick once and his sort of his expressions were sort of like I'm playing my game quite well. I'm just enjoying this this spectacle of, of, of who I'm playing against. Um, and I think that will stand him in, in good stead moving forward. You know, there's not, he's not, there's not going to be, doesn't look like anywhere there's going to be another player like Federer that's going to, going to dominate for such a long period of time. But yeah, he's one. And my second one's just a bit of a wild card. Um, there's, there's no player on the tour like Dustin Brown for me. Um, his rankings dropped to 246 now, but he's had a couple of big days on the tour. He's beaten Nadal twice, grass court specialist, um, 35 years old, uh, usually wears a vest and has his dreadlocks hanging down towards like his bum. And uh, big server, mixes up the rallies, likes to play drop shots at whenever he feels like, to be honest. Um, so yeah, he's always good fun to watch, more of a sort of a exhibition type player. Um, just yeah, just a real entertainer. Um, so yeah, those those two finish off the three that I'd like to highlight today. 
Yeah, no, Dustin Brown, of course, is is an entertainer and he's got on a 100% record against Rafael Nadal, as you say, beating him both times on grass. Um, yeah, the other two players I was going to go through very quickly, uh, Dominic Team, who is a much more well-known player, third in the world now, came very close to winning his first Grand Slam in January at the Australian Open. But I really like watching him mainly because of, of that brilliant one-handed backhand shot. But he, he's very... Um, he, he's, he's also quite a battler, like we said, with Richard Gasquet. He can really stay in points well, um, but he can hit some fantastic winners. And I think he's just a great, great all-rounder. And I think when I watch him play, I, I see him as someone who really can threaten these big three, which I think so many tennis fans are sort of hoping for as much as we love Federer and Adele and Djokovic, um, we, we really do see a light in team and he, he so nearly won the Australian Open this year. And then the other one that I'm going to mention, um, you know, we could talk for hours on this, whether he's good to watch or not, but of course it's Nick Kyrgios. Um, whether he's good or bad to watch, I think all of the discussion that there is around Kyrgios, I think it, it's good for tennis, you know, it, it does attract a lot of attention to tennis and I think when you're watching Kyrgios play well he is honestly I think one of the best players to watch on tour he's so entertaining he's got absolutely everything in his book you know he is a big server so you do get a lot of games where you're you are watching ace after ace but then you know he's also got some fantastic ground strokes he's got he's very creative in rallies he'll hit some really unorthodox shots you know there's a lot of between the leg shots and you get the underarm serves and it's always a bit unpredictable to watch. So uh, yeah, Nick Kyrgios is my one. Yeah, I can't argue with that. Kyrgios is, is pure box office at times. And yeah, just a little hint, I might go team with my pick for the US Open uh, in a couple of weeks' time. I'm feeling good about him at the moment. So um, that was us uh, talking about our favourite players in the game. and We're now going to move on to our sort of weekly... Uh, trivia bit at the end of the podcast which is guess the player as always so I think uh, I think I went first last week Marcus Uh, yeah I'm not too fussed about keeping rotating it yeah that's fine Um, if I'll do my clues for you first if you want yeah Yeah, go for it okay so clue number one uh, a little bit of a vague one uh, I have a two-handed backhand. Oh, blimey. Andy Murray. No. Uh, clue number two. I have two ATP Tour titles. And that's on the main tour, not the Challenger Tour or anything. Um, two Tour titles. Matteo Berrettini. Good guess, but no. Uh, clue number three, my best Grand Slam result is a third round result at Wimbledon in 2019. Uh, so last year's Wimbledon, where I lost to Ryanich in straight sets. Oh, blimey. Uh, I'm struggling. That's a tough first three, I reckon. Uh, lost to Ryan. I didn't even know Ryanich got to the fourth round. I know, neither did I until I looked this up. Forgotten about that. Medvedev. Uh, no. 
question number four, I think, is, is a bit more helpful. I'm 22 years old and I was born in Michigan. Okay. Is it Riley Opelka? Correct. It is Riley Opelka. So you got it on clue four, which I reckon you, you had a good good chance at my my sixth clue was i am almost seven foot in height which i think would have given it away as uh riley opelka is i think the tallest player in the top 100 yeah uh, could be wrong on that but yeah very very tall and i've seen him in in real life and it is quite shocking how tall he is so i'll let mark yeah i'm gonna need to do it again because I was about to describe Riley Opelka with five clues. No way. Did we do the same player? <laughs> yeah, so give me a sec. <laughs> My funny. clue was going to be you've walked past him in real life. Oh, really? I had one Delray <laughs> Beach. What clue was that? The first so one? That was been last. I had one Delray Beach in February. 39 in the rankings. I would have got it on clue number one if you'd done first because my my fifth clue is... I won Delray Beach in February this year, beating Nishioka in the final. Right then. I knew this would happen. I didn't think it would happen in the third week, though. So, after that uh, confusion and uh, clashing with the, with the players we're about to describe, I've settled on this man. The first clue is he's 35 years old. 35 years old. Um... Go for Victor Troisky. No, I wasn't going to go that niche. Don't worry, it's not Victor Troisky. Uh, his career high is number six. Hmm. Um. You say thirty-five? Yeah. Thirty-five. Yeah. Uh, career high of six. Go for no song has been higher than that. Um. It'd be Tommy Robredo. So he must be more than 35. I don't know. No, it's not <laughs> Robredo. Uh, the next thing is never got past a quarterfinal at a slam, despite that that decent ranking. That's interesting. I feel like I should get this. Uh, 35, sixth in the world. Never been past a quarterfinal. Um... I'm actually so bad at these. I'm trying to think of players that have played at the O2 at the end of the year, 35. Um, could it be Richard Gasquet? No, I didn't try to do the double bluff. No. Fourth clue is, to be fair, this might not help you at all. It kind of sums up sort of player is obviously never got past a quarter final in a slam. He only actually got to a quarter final twice. So actually only got past the fourth round at a slam twice. But he's won fourteen career titles. Yeah, it doesn't help me an awful lot. Um I would ooh Gaumon Feast. Good guess. You've gone down the right path, but wrong. The fifth clue is he's French. You'll definitely get this. Say again. 
You'll definitely kick yourself if you don't get this. No, I'm now thinking Gilles Simon, but I don't think he's been as high as six in the world. So Songa has been higher than six. Songa's been third in the world before, I believe, if not fourth. Monfils, Gasquet. Yeah, I'm going to have to go for Gilles Simon. Yeah, correct. You almost put yourself out of it, but yeah. When was when was he sixth in the world? <laughs> I don't know. To be honest, uh, it's probably like around 2010. Yeah, Chil Simon. What? <laughs> oh, fair enough. That um, that was a good one. That because the sixth in the world really threw me because I I wasn't even aware Chil Simon had been in the top twelve or thirteen, let alone the top six. So yeah, good one. Okay, that is it for today. Thank you for listening to the Tennis Fanalist podcast. Uh, I've been Michael Gillett and with me was Marcus Alley and hopefully you can join us for next week. Thanks for listening. Have a good week.